I next met with nurse practitioner Ms. Kenna Miller to review how she prepares patients with myeloma for various therapies. And to begin, she commented on one of the most common induction regimens in younger patients, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, or RVD. So it's a three-drug regimen, so I would start with the lenalidomide because there's a great deal of information that goes with it. There's what's called the Revisys program where you have to counsel a patient not to share the drug with anyone, not to donate blood while you're on the drug. And women of childbearing potential need two negative pregnancy tests before they start on it. Gentlemen have to be counseled every month and have to do a phone survey every month stating that they were, again, reminded that they cannot share the drug, donate blood while they're on the drug, and if they're going to have intercourse with women of childbearing potential, they need to use two forms of birth control, including a barrier method. And gentlemen are counseled that each and every month before we reorder the drug, and they're required to do a phone survey with Celgene, who gives us an authorization number to dispense the medication. Every pharmacy needs that authorization number to dispense it, and the pharmacy is also required to do a phone survey with the patient, reiterating the same thing. It gets to be entertaining trying to re-explain it again every month to keep their attention with it. So the side effect profile in particular with lenalidomide, you can see rash. And very interestingly, with that drug, I can see rash just on the scalp. And that can be a generalized rash. Anytime patients have a rash on the drug, we ask them to call and we'll usually evaluate it. Interesting, most of the time you do not have to take the patient off the drug. You can treat them through rash if they have it with antihistamine and uh, topical steroid creams such as over-the-counter hydrocortisone. So other side effects that you will see with that, patients' counts can go down, and by counts I mean their white count can go down, their hemoglobin can go down, and their platelets can go down. Typically, when we put patients on that regimen for the first month, we monitor those labs on a weekly basis. Interestingly, when they get a few cycles out, their counts don't go as low. Other things that you can see with that that are kind of not as common, you can see a little bit of peripheral neuropathy with it, although it is not as pronounced as it was with a drug like thalidomide or bortezomib. This regimen, because it includes an imid, which is the lenalidomide and a steroid, statistically there's a higher incidence of blood clots with that combination. So we usually use aspirin, or you can even use low-dose warfarin as an anticoagulant, but they need to be on some kind of anticoagulant. If they have higher risk factors, you may use full-dose versus a baby aspirin. And a lot of times that's individual with each patient and each physician which they would be preferring. How about the bortezomib part of the RVD? The bortezomib, you see a lot of what they call asthenia or fatigue and tiredness with patients with that. And what you need to do, especially with that, is counsel patients. You are going to feel more tired, but you are going to have to intersperse that with activity. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. You become more tired the less you do, the more tired you become. 
Peripheral neuropathy still ends up being an issue with this medication, although the incidence has fallen greatly since we stopped giving it IV push for the most part and are usually giving it subcutaneously. They actually did head-to-head studies where they looked at the safety and efficacy and particularly the peripheral neuropathy when patients were giving it IV versus giving it subcutaneous. And what they found out was the efficacy was essentially the same, but the incidence of peripheral neuropathy was markedly diminished. You need to ask patients each and every time they come into the office if they're experiencing it and let them describe the way it feels. And I've had patients describe it every way from like standing on the rung of a ladder, walking on a stone driveway, numbness, tingling. Some people will have sensory neuropathy with that. It's actually a pretty common side effect with it that we need to be mindful of it. The cell line that is most affected by bortezomib is the platelet line. And that goes down when we used to dose at day 1, 4, 8, and 11. By the 11th day, it was its lowest and then it would rebound by day 21. On some of these regimens, we're not giving it twice a week, we're giving it once a week, and it's been less prominent with low platelet counts in that instance. Any clinical observations or pearls about sub-Q bortezomib? It seems like it is now being very widely used. Any comments about it and how patients tolerate it? This is FDA approved to give in the abdomen or the thigh. It's not approved by the FDA to give in the arm, and that's something that you have to counsel nurses. And nurses have to counsel patients because a lot of times the patients will say, well, I don't want it in my abdomen, but that's the way it needs to be given. And the way I put it to patients is, well, I don't know about you, but I got a whole lot more fat in my abdomen than I do in my arms. (laughs) And the other thing, we give it, like you would give other kind of injections of chemotherapy, and it's what we would slang term an air bolus. So when the pharmacy draws up the drug, they draw it up with one needle, and then you administer it to the patient with a different needle. Nurses are used to priming the needle with the drug. We don't prime the needle with the drug. So you go into the subcutaneous tissues, you inject the medication, so there's a little bit of air in front of it, and then you put a little bit of air in the syringe so that when you come out, you're not tracking the drug through the skin when you give it. And what that has done is cut down on the redness inflammation that patients experience when you give the injection. Overall, globally, if you start out with a patient who's performance status good, you know, no major symptomatology, what do you tell them to expect from a number of cycles of RVD? Are they going to be able to work? You know, what's their general quality of life like? What I have seen typically as patients get further out in their cycles, most of the time they become more and more tired. That's why I find it it's important up front to warn them that you're going to have to intersperse rest with activity because if you don't try to push through some of the fatigue, it will become overwhelming. Some patients, they don't have any symptoms for the most part from their disease. Their numbers may be very high, but they're not terribly symptomatic. And then you treat them, they feel worse. Some patients that feel poorly when you start them and they're quite symptomatic, the more you treat them, sometimes the better they feel. And that will vary from patient to patient. But overall, sometimes the tiredness is something that patients complain of as they get many cycles through. 
So another common regimen that's utilized in this upfront pre-transplant situation is so-called Cyborg-D, where they receive cyclophosphamide instead of the lenalidomide with the other two drugs. How do you counsel patients receiving Cyborg-D? So counts may be a little more affected when you're using the cyclophosphamide as well. So you always counsel to monitor for temperatures, anything over 100.4, they need to call and inform you. A lot of times we'll give them a prescription for an antibiotic. You call us if you have a fever, we will always evaluate you, but we usually have antibiotic at home that they have ready in case they need it. That becomes a problem. I'm surprised, but a lot of the patients don't lose their hair from it. That's always a concern a great deal of the time, and I have not seen it a lot. So another event that a lot of patients have, particularly younger age patients under 70 particularly, is an autologous transplant, and that often follows these types of induction regimens. Again, in a patient who's heading towards a transplant, how do you prepare them in terms of what to expect? So if you're using, say, the RVD regimen with the lenalidomide, there's a little bit of suppression of the bone marrow. So a lot of times around the fourth and maybe the fifth cycle, they will stem cell collect the patient. They'll assess disease involvement, typically do bone marrow biopsy, and collect the stem cells at that point. It's a little easier to mobilize them if they haven't had a lot of, particularly the lenalidomide, up front. Oftentimes, if they still have residual disease, they may put them back on the regimen for a few additional cycles and then go on to the stem cell transplant if that's what the patient and the doctor feel is the best avenue for that patient. And what about the experience itself, the transplant? How long does it require them to be in the hospital? When can they go back to work? Typically, patients are in the hospital anywhere from two weeks to a month, depending on if they have side effects. Some centers actually do outpatient autologous transplants. You have to have a very compliant and reliable patient to do that to show up for counts. Typically what happens is patients are given a very high dose of chemotherapy that obliterates the bone marrow, and then you repopulate the bone marrow with the stem cells that you've collected. So counts will go down for anywhere from 10 days or so. It's improved with growth factors, and during that time, they're not making their red cells, they're not making their own platelets, and they usually need frequent transfusion. The process overall, especially with auto-transplant, is certainly smoother than it is with autologous transplants because you're getting your own marrow back. The biggest concern in the transplant process is vulnerability for infection, and oftentimes patients will see mucositis or mouth sores. And typically, we have a multitude of different mouth wrenches to keep the mouth moist. And another experience or treatment that a lot of patients are receiving after transplant is so-called maintenance therapy. Sometimes or often this might be lenalidomide, but also bortezomib has been used in some situations. What do you say to a patient who's about to begin that post-transplant maintenance phase? 
So typically in the upfront, they will tell them how long initially they plan to put them on the maintenance. Sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's two years, depending on the patient. We always have to inform patients. There were studies that showed when lenalidomide was used as a maintenance therapy in the post-transplant setting, there was a higher incidence of secondary malignancies. So we have to inform patients that that is a possibility. And the patient's opinion and their feeling on the matter is always taken into consideration when it's discussed. But everything's always put on the table. What about specific issues using lenalidomide long-term, pretty much what you talked about earlier, or anything different to consider? What I have seen mostly is patients complain of the fatigue in the overall. But patients actually tolerate it pretty well, I have to say. The fatigue is usually the biggest thing. They don't necessarily have big drops in the counts. Sometimes their counts are a little bit lower than the normal range, but it's actually tolerated pretty well. Now, we've been talking about treatments that have been around for a little while, a few years. And in a second, I want to ask you about some of the newer treatments that come out. But I also want to stop and ask a little bit about the issue of the older patient, over 75, over 80 years old. We're still kind of using the same kinds of therapy, of course, not transplant. But how does your patient education change when you're dealing with an older patient? Older patients, a lot of the time, have more sensitivity to the medications their side effects are more pronounced. So oftentimes the doses will be slightly less and based on their toleration of it. You have a lower threshold for their side effects to see them. You see them most definitely on a frequent basis. And another thing, older patients are on a lot of other con meds, so you have to be aware of the other medications they're on for other disease processes such as high blood pressure or hyperlipidemia. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of agents that have just come available relatively recently. The first is carfilzomib. Can you explain what it is and what do you say to a patient who's about to begin carfilzomib? So carfilzomib is a new proteasome inhibitor. It's typically transfused over two hours. They also give fluids before and after the infusion of it and antiemetics and oftentimes a small dose of steroid to prevent side effects. It's typically given two days a week for three weeks on a 28-day cycle. And again, the side effect profile is pretty similar. Sometimes you can have diminishment in counts, sometimes fatigue. I'm not seeing as much peripheral neuropathy with it at this point, but you have to remember we're not using it in the upfront setting, and a lot of patients have had prior medications that did cause peripheral neuropathy. I have not seen it worsen with any patients that we have given to yet. Yeah, I guess from the clinical research, it looks like it kind of really doesn't cause peripheral neuropathy. I have not seen it to date. What about shortness of breath and cardiac problems? Have you seen that or is that an issue with this drug? It has been mentioned. Typically when they do this on clinical trials, they compile the data of all the side effects that patients experience. And we were fortunate enough to participate on some of the original trials, and you do see that. 
And the thing you need to caution nurses when they're following patients that are on these medications, is it the medication that's causing the side effect or is it some other issue? So when the shortness of breath started, do we think it's attributable to the drug? Are they having a cold? Do they have pneumonia? That sort of thing. So you need to sort it out. What about the twice a week injections? How much of a problem is that for patients? Most centers are open at least five days a week. Some are open six. And when you set it up, you know, what days work for your life? It's usually a two-hour infusion by the time they get the fluids and the actual drug itself. And patients are amazing and pretty adaptable. If you tell them what it's going to be up front and warn them the way it's going to be, they can adapt their schedule to it. Now, the other entry into the approved agent scene is pomalidomide, another IMID, immune modulatory agent like lenalidomide, which you were talking about before, and thalidomide. What do you say to patients who are about to receive pomalidomide? Again, the side effect profile is very similar to its predecessors. So you may see some count diminishment. You, of course, have to counsel patients with protected intercourse if they're of childbearing potential. That's FDA mandated. And it's pretty much the same side effect profile as its predecessors. What about food with pomalidomide? Should it be taken in the morning on an empty stomach or with food? The only thing I could think is typically with lenalidomide, we usually tell them an hour and a half or so after dinner. A lot of times food will just slow its absorption. What do you tell patients who miss a dose of either pomalidomide or lenalidomide? Most of the time we don't make up the dose. If you forgot it, that's fine. If you forgot it for a week, we got a problem. (laughs) But typically we don't make up a dose if you missed it. And, you know, these two drugs, pomalidomide and carfilzomib, are now approved in the relapsed refractory setting. So this is not for people just starting out on treatment. But when patients do have relapse after their primary therapy, you know, how's the decision made in terms of which one's going to go first, pomalidomide or carfilzomib? You tailor it to the patient. What were they treated with first? So were they RVD? Were they cyborg? What have they had first? And if you had a proteasome inhibitor in the front line, depending on how quickly or how soon they had disease that needed treated again, you may want to move to a different class of drug. Let's talk a little bit about the cases you brought here today, and maybe we can just kind of focus on a couple of issues related to them. The first is 75-year-old man. What happened with him? He was actually a newly diagnosed gentleman. And I probably can think of 20 patients that I followed over the years that presented it exactly as he did. He had bone pain, and it got worse. It was chronic. It got worse to the point where he couldn't tolerate it. He presented in the emergency room with a vertebral compression fracture, and he was also in renal failure. What was his lifestyle like before he became ill? What was he doing? What was his surroundings? He had had a pretty productive and very active life until probably he started with the back pain 
and he became more and more debilitated with the back pain. He had been to the doctor. They tried a little physical therapy. They tried a little of this and tried a little of that, and then it got significantly worse over a short period of time. And that's when he sought care in the emergency room. Is that typical or atypical for myeloma that, you know, patients maybe go through a stage initially where it's not diagnosed? It's actually very typical. And I always say you can never replace a very savvy primary care physician. A lot of times, the only abnormality on a physical for an annual would be an elevated total protein on a complete metabolic profile. And they're very savvy, and then they do a little more testing, and a lot of times that's how MGUS, or monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance, or multiple myeloma is found. They find it that way. They further test. They may be slightly anemic along with the elevated protein, and they test them and then refer them. So what did this man's initial evaluation show? His initial evaluation, he had renal failure with a creatinine of 8.3. They worked him up, hydrated him, discovered he had myeloma. He had bone marrow biopsy, and we actually started him in the hospital on high doses of dexamethasone. He was given 40 milligrams for four days. He was discharged, came to the outpatient clinic. And because he had renal failure, we started him immediately on bortezomib-based therapy in combination with the dexamethasone. And literally after five cycles, he had a partial remission with a 75% reduction in his M protein, and he never required dialysis. Now, you mentioned that he received bortezomib. What is it specifically about bortezomib that allows it to be used? It's not metabolized or excreted through the kidneys. So you can give it to patients in renal failure, and you can give it to patients with renal insufficiency. And because this gentleman had such aggressive disease, we actually started him on day one, four, eight, and 11, and we treated him that way for two cycles. And then we went down to once a week dosing for him, and he did very well. And what is his current situation? We took him off after the fifth cycle because he had a right inguinal hernia that was causing him a great deal of pain that needed to be treated. So we took him off of treatment. He had his hernia repaired, and I saw him actually last week, and he has gotten significantly weaker. And I'm not really sure why he became so much weaker. And the best that I can come up with at this point, imaging didn't show any myeloma involvement further in the spine. But I think that he was fatigued from his previous therapy, although we pushed him and he was very active when he got therapy. But I think the inguinal surgery put him on his back for a while. And then when he got up to get moving again, he's actually fallen six times at home over the last week or so. And actually, I saw him this Monday, and we have sent him to acute rehab. And when he was in the clinic, I gave him several exercises to do to get him up to speed again. And I think he'll qualify for the acute rehab, and I think he'll turn around quite quickly. His disease is under good control currently. 
And it's interesting about this issue of requiring surgery. How do you generally handle that situation in terms of antimyeloma drugs? You stopped it in his case. How long do you keep them off the drugs and when do you start them back on it? So this ends up being a real challenge with some patients. I had another patient that had consistent esophageal pain and she needed hernia repair. And by the time all the testing got done for her GI problem, we needed to change her regimen and treat her additionally. So it always ends up being what's in the foremost for the patient. If their disease is too critical or on an upgrowing pace, then that will take precedence and the surgery will take the back burner. If it's something very strategic that needs to be taken care of immediately, then that gets taken care of. We don't usually have patient on therapy while they're on surgery and recovering from surgery. And the other thing is too, the dexamethasone may impede wound healing. So they would need to be off of that. Now, this man, as you mentioned, is, I guess, a new patient. He's just been in your practice the last few months. What are his social surroundings? Does he have a spouse? And what were the discussions that went on in the beginning and have continued in terms of sort of what to expect from the future and what his concerns are? Well, he presented in renal failure. So we were very upfront with him that we didn't know if we could regain his renal function. We thought we could improve it, but we didn't know if we could make it better. And each and every time he came in, himself and his wife would always celebrate because the creatinine was better and the kidney filtration was up. And you have to be upfront with patients. We don't know if it'll get better. We'll find out together. And this is what you have control over. What he had control over was a liberal fluid intake. And he worked really hard at that, and his wife helped him work really hard with that. So when you're upfront and honest with patients and tell them, we don't know what we're going to get, but we're in it together. And it takes the caregiver and the spouse a lot of work. And the other thing that's very important and that I find that nurses do really well is we understand that when patients are going through all of this, their spouse and their family member and their caregiver is going through it with them. And you have to remember to tell these people that they need a break too. And I always tell patients this, and I tell patients this and their families, especially when they're going into transplant. The patient is sick and needs a lot of attention, but you need attention too. Family and friends want to help you. So tell them what they can do to help you. It takes it off your back and it makes them feel good. A bouquet of flowers is lovely, but maybe if they could take your kids to the zoo so that your kids were having a good time while you were tied up with making mom or dad feel better. If they can take somebody to the hospital or if they can come and stay with your spouse so you can go and spend time with your children, that's important. Tell people what they can do to help you. How do you find interactions with this man's spouse? It's very, it's very interesting and a lot of times the patient will tell you, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this. And an example is if you ask them if they're fatigued, then they're, I'm not too bad. And their wife is sitting behind him and they're shaking their head like, uh-uh. 
<laughs> He's living on the couch. And they'll tell. And you ask the patient first, and then you ask the spouse, how is he doing at home? How have you seen how they've changed at home? And it's a very interactive conversation, not only with the patient, but with the person that comes with them too, because they're in your office for a short period of time, and this is the person that lives with this disease with the patient every day, and they need a good understanding and good support as well. I'm curious what you've observed in marriages where the couples are going through this experience. What came up with this man and his wife? What's been very prominent with them lately is she keeps telling him, you know, you need to get up and you need to move around. And I actually said this when they were in the clinic this week and I was talking to the patient and I said, this is what you need to do. And she's sitting in the background and she said, this is what I've been telling him. And I said to the patient, I said, I'm sorry, but sometimes when she's right, she's right. But that's the other issue. When your spouse tells you you need to get up and move around and you need to do this and you need to do that, they're nagging you. But when I tell them, it's, you know, the doctor's office is telling you, you have to do this. So a lot of times it's reinforcing. And what became an issue with this patient this week is he's a very big, tall man. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and she's a little tiny, petite lady. And when this man hits the deck, they live together with no one else. And she's the one that has to get him up off the floor. And I was very frank with him. And I said, you need to get moving and you need to do these exercises. And I think you need acute rehab. I said, you've fallen six times. You're high risk for fracture because of your myeloma bones. She's a little tiny lady and she's going to get hurt picking you up off the floor. And I think this is what you need. And he was accepting of that. And we actually filled out the paperwork yesterday, and he's been accepted into acute rehab. And that's why I have him doing the exercise at home. I actually called him yesterday to see how he was doing. And he goes, my calves and my thighs are burning <laughs> from all these exercises. And I go, good. <laughs> Feel the burn. <laughs> I said, then it's nothing. Wait till you get in rehab. But if they see that he's trying and he is trying, it will get better for him. And when they were in the clinic, I was very frank with both of them. And I spoke to her too. And I said, you listen, you have children that live in the area. I asked her, do you have sons, daughters that live in the area? I said, they need to come over and do some of this exercise with him. If he falls and you can't get him up, you call 911 or you call your son. You can't do it all yourself. And I actually said, you know, let people help you. Tell them what they can do. I said, you need a break from this sometimes too. Do you think that there's a part of him that wants to give up? Do you know, sometimes I think people feel so tired that they just, I know I need to exercise, I knew to do this, I know I need to walk around, and they're just too tired that they can't do it. And yeah, sometimes I just feel that they do kind of feel that way. They're just exhausted. And sometimes it's being a cheerleader. You can do this, you have to do this, and this is why you have to do this. I'll give you an example of another patient that I had that came into clinic. And the first time I ever saw him, he was a hoveled 
tired, cold little guy hanging out under a blanket when he came into clinic. He had foot drop because he hadn't walked for so long. And every time he came in, I made him get up on the exam table. And every time he got up in the exam table, we went to the one, two, three, four of some exercise. And every time he got better, he came in one time and he wouldn't let the nurses weigh him. And they put on the chart, patient would not weigh. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> so what I did is I had him push his wheelchair out to the scale and I weighed him. And then every time he came in, I said, this is awesome because this wheelchair is very steady. It's better than any walker going. And every time he came into clinic, he pushed the wheelchair out to the waiting room where he waited to get his treatment. And it was just a matter of encouraging him every time he came in. I was off one time and he saw someone else and he goes, I'd only want to see you because you really care about me. And he felt that way because every time he came in, I made him work a little bit more. And he was encouraged by that. And his wife was encouraged by it. And that's part of what we do as nurses and nurse practitioners and physicians is just help them a little bit more and encourage them each and every time they come in. And it was amazing to see how well he did. And all it took was just a little bit of encouragement. Yeah, you know, I was just sort of flashing, you know, here's this man, 75 years old. He's already been in the last few months. He's been through a lot of stuff. You know, he's got involvement of the disease in his spine. He's got an anti-myeloma treatment. He's going through renal failure. He's scared about dialysis. He goes through this surgery. And, you know, it would probably be easy to sort of feel sorry for him. And yet it sounds like you're pushing him pretty hard. I was, and he did well with it. And his wife did well with it because you're backing up what she knew he had to do. And I showed her how to do exercises with him. I said, when your family comes over, they can do this with him. And it makes a huge difference. It just really does. And he's responded well to everything because he sees encouragement. You leave him with a little bit of encouragement every time they come in there. I'm sorry you're weaker and I don't know why this is happening. You know, you've had a lot of steroid therapy. It can make your quadriceps weak. You've had surgery and that can make you weak but you need to kick back right now and here's how you're gonna do it a little bit at a time. And I was so encouraged that when I called him to let him know that we were doing the paperwork for rehab and that it looked like it was gonna be a go for it, that he said he was burdened <laughs> because he was doing it. He realized that this is what he had to do to get back to where he was.